The words of Jesus, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word for us. Now in this passage, Jesus is dealing with a tension that sits at the heart of human life. And that's why so many people consider this passage probably to be the pivotal, the, the, the crux point of the Sermon on the Mount. Here, Jesus is uh, addressing, exploring this constant tension that, it lived, that happens in life between law and love. How do law and love fit together? Now, I don't presume that you wake up every morning thinking, how am I going to resolve that tension today? Oh, that's one of my biggest anxieties this morning. How do I fit law and love together? That's not at the forefront of your mind. I, I don't assume that. But it is, you know what? It is something you live out every day. It is something you wrestle with and struggle with. It's a key um, struggle for all of our lives. For, for starters, the tension is experienced between law and love in, in how we understand God. Even if you don't believe in God, as you think about the idea of God, you're going to land in probably one of two categories, that God is a God of love or God is a God of law. We all go in that place. Either you paint God as this demanding, holy God who you can only appease by back-breaking moral effort, or you understand God, you see God as what C.S. Lewis once called a senile old benevolence who tolerates pretty much anything and everyone, no matter how they live. That relates to how we relate to God as well. You and I have a relationship with God. We think we have this relationship with God either through law or through love. On the one hand, I think if I have a relationship with God, um, it's because I'm living morally according to his standards. I'm working hard. It's because I've prayed enough. I've gone to church enough. I've given enough. I've been good enough for God to accept me. On the other hand, some people think if it's a God of love, I have a relationship with God because God just embraces me no matter what I do. It doesn't matter. I simply have the attitude of a German thinker, Heinrich Heine, who once said, I like to sin. God likes to forgive. Really, the world is quite admirably arranged. And I hear those two notions all the time. I hear it among Christians. Yes, God is a God of grace. Maybe pe people don't say it, or, or, but it's how we live. Yeah, I believe in a God of grace. Yeah, he's loving, but up to a point. And really then, you better live well. And if I've somehow done something wrong, I'm getting punished. That's why, because I haven't lived up to God's standards. That makes law absolute. On the other hand, I hear from a number of skeptics that I get to hang out with, oh, I can't believe in a God of the Bible because he's a God of law. He seems to be this angry God who punishes and judges people. And I can only believe in a God of love. But what people don't realize when they say that 
is that in an effort to make God more loving, we actually make God less loving. Because think of it, when you love someone, don't you care enough to get angry? When a friend is just wrecking their life with their poor decisions, with their foolishness, don't you care enough to get angry at that person and say, that's wrong, stop it? Don't you make judgments about your family, about what is good? Don't you set consequences with your children? Those are expressions of love. And so do we really want a God who, when he looks at injustice, when he looks at evil, takes no action, just sort of shrugs his shoulders and says, I just love everyone. How can that be a loving God? And so we feel stuck. And we gravitate towards one or the other. We have this natural inclination to one or the other. Either or, law or love. And it's not just in our views on God. We saw two children this morning being baptized. We see this law or love dilemma in how we raise children. Are you going to give your child whatever he or she wants? Completely let them do whatever they want. Because you want to love them. So, of course, you'll give them whatever. You're going to wreck them badly if you do that. There's been a whole spate of articles recently, too, about how all the endless praise that parents lavish and shower on their children actually sets their kids back. Don't do that, they're saying. But on the other hand, if it's going to be all rules, you know, if your child, unless they come home with top grades, unless they learn how to play that violin at concerto level, uh, unless they make their bed perfectly, you're not going to be loved. That's not a child. That's a servant. You're going to wreck them that way, too. We see this law, love, tension in how we understand how we build a good world, how we build a good society. Up until about the 15th century, you couldn't have a common culture without a common religion where everyone understood God and his laws and how life was to be lived. But our world doesn't believe that anymore because... What happened was wars of religion. People took their idea of God and said, God's on my side. I understand what he's like. And they slaughtered people in the name of God. They committed all sorts of violence justified by their idea of God and what they believed his law was. And so they use religion in oppressive ways. And, and so people in society said that is just a bad way for a world to run. Let's think of another way. And the pendulum went to the other side. And now the whole approach is that absolute law of God doesn't work for society. And so now things, as I said, moved in the opposite direction. And now we're convinced you can't build a cohesive society if you do believe in that God of law. And the only way for people to care for one another, to properly love one another, is to hold... I guess that all truth is relative, that everyone should decide what's right for themselves, that everyone needs to be accepted and embraced and loved no matter what, no judgments made. But we're seeing cracks in that idea too, because actually our tolerance and our insistence on tolerance can be equally oppressive. You know, anyone who might hold convictions is not tolerated. And not only that, there's one law professor, um, Arthur Leff, he says, this under common Western mentality for understanding how to build a good society where we accept everyone and everyone's, you know, love, no judgments made. He says, that doesn't provide for a coherent good society. What he's saying is that if there is not an objective law in our world, how dare you impose your cultural values on me? Who says? Says who? 
Listen to what he writes at the end of a Yale uh, Law Review article. He says, the death of God eliminated any coherent ethical or legal system. So neither love or reason or terror can make us good anymore. Everything is up for grabs. And he closes with these lines. Killing babies is bad. Starving children is bad. But says who? See what he's getting at? By, by, by saying no one can tell us what to do. There's no law that should dictate life. We can't determine actually what is right and wrong. We have no basis for it. We, and so we have no basis even for any moral outrage. And so in the end, the idea that there is no absolute moral law and that God will judge you unless you live according to that law, that doesn't build a good society either. Uh, and, and, and the idea that what we do, whatever is right, whatever we feel is right in our own eyes, that doesn't provide a good future. So how do we sort this out? It's this dilemma of law and love. See, I told you, we do struggle with it. Maybe you should wake up with attention, that anxiety tomorrow morning. Enter Jesus. Jesus comes and says there is a way to integrate both law and love. It is the way that God has always been revealing and Jesus shows us how in God neither law nor love are primary but both are equally foundational. And what Jesus is introducing is the gospel. Not irreligion, not religion, something unique, the gospel. And in the gospel, it puts together these two things that previous schools of thoughts have thought incompatible, law and love. You can't bring them together. They're two separate things. They just eat each other up if you bring them together. Jesus says, no, no, no. Law and love come together in such a way that neither lose an inch of their impact. Both are fully honored. And Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount here, he's telling us about this good life that God offers to us. And in the process, he's been turning over all the expected notions of, what, of how life should be lived. And he, he introduces, remember, through the Beatitudes, and says that, you know what, it's not the religiously respectable people who've got it all together who are getting into God's kingdom. It's the poor in heart, he says. That's not the powerful and the rich, but it's the weak and the meek. It's those people who just know they don't have it together who find this life. And, and this problem, so Jesus is just overturning all the assumptions people have. And, and this probably has led people to, to think, well, he's just thrown everything out now, isn't it? It's just, we don't have to follow the law. And so now Jesus is responding to that assumption. And he surprises people by insisting that the choice is not between grace and law. These two actually have to be integrated, and they are perfectly integrated in the person of Jesus. Listen to what he says. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill it. Now, first off, think about what he's saying. Who can say those sorts of things? Because later on he says that the law will, not, neither a, a jot nor a tittle, not the smallest part, um, not a stroke of a pen is going to be, uh, is to go away until the end of time. He's saying that there's something eternal about it. And he's saying that he is going to fulfill it. Now who is able to say that? If any one of us would come along saying those sorts of things, we know, you know, you need some serious help. But here is Jesus making some extraordinary claims about himself. That he is the fulfillment of this law. That Jesus is talking about himself in ways that grabs you. Twice he says, I have come. 
Now, all of a sudden, you think that raises the question, from where? I have come. There's a self-understanding about himself here. Jesus is not merely another rabbi. He's not just another teacher offering yet another religion. Jesus knows himself to be more than a man. And these words, I have come, which again, he says twice, imply just this bigger status, this heavenly origin. He's saying, I have come here. I have come down to earth. I have come from heaven. Is that your understanding of Jesus? That he is God? Please don't say, well, he seems to be a good teacher. Because that's not what Jesus is saying about himself. He's saying something quite contrary. Not that he's not, a, he's not less than that, but so much more. He is the living God in human flesh. And he comes not to abolish the law, not to, to, to set aside one small part of it, but to fulfill it. A lot of people conclude in the Christian life because there's this thing called grace that somehow there's no place for law. It's all love. For somehow we set them as opposites. That one just consumes the other. They can't coexist. But remember, it was God who gave the law in the first place. The law was one of the most prized possessions of the people of Israel. The great human predicament in the ancient world was how do we live this good life? And the law was seen as the only viable solution for that. And, and these, these commands, they're, they're, they're beautiful, they're good, they emerge from God's heart. They're demonstrating something of his character. They're not, you know, sort of arbitrary ethical injunctions, but they, they're, they're flowing out of the very essence and heart of who God is. And they fit human life, they fit with the structure of reality. Jesus knew this, you know, because when someone asked him, how, how do I receive eternal life? What did Jesus say? Keep the law. So this anti-law spirit, it's just not part of God's kingdom. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Now think of that. How do you love someone? You find out what pleases them, and you do it. I've learned in my marriage, I'm a slow learner. We've been married over 25 years. But I've learned that when my wife comes home from grocery shopping, she really appreciates if I come to the car and help her carry the groceries into the house. It's an important, for her, it's an important expression of love. Can she do it herself? Of course she can. But it pleases her. So I'm learning to do it. How do you love God? You find out what pleases God, and you do it. And the law pleases God because it is who he is. The law is an expression of his heart, his character. And so we can't think of Jesus setting aside the law, getting rid of it. Not even the smallest bit. Instead, Jesus comes as the fulfiller Literally, he says, I have come to fulfill the lot. That word fulfill means literally to fill full. Jesus is the one who fills the law up to its fullest beauty and extent, shows us the most, the, the greatest sense of integrity and beauty to it by confirming it, first of all, by saying yes to it, that this is the way to life, but then also by embodying it. By living it out, by doing it. He fully lives it. He fulfills it. Think about how you fulfill a law for a minute. Either you keep the law, right? You fulfill a law, or you pay the price for breaking the law. For example, um, there are laws here in Ontario that say don't drive distracted, don't text while you drive. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands how many have done that. Maybe on the way to church this morning. (laughs) 
distract the driving laws. And either you follow that law or you text while you're driving and you get ticketed and you pay the penalty. Now, in either case, you have fulfilled the law. The law has no more claim on you. You obey it or you pay the penalty. The law can't condemn you anymore. You fulfilled it. How does Jesus do that? The law of God is the good life of complete integrity and goodness and beauty. And Jesus comes to earth and fulfills it twice, two ways. He fulfills it by obeying it. He perfectly lived it, not only by perfectly obeying it, but also because he is the point of it all. He uses the phrase, the law and the prophets, which is sort of a summary term for the whole Old Testament, the whole package. And, and, and so everything in it, not just the, 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 the legal injunctions, but all the prophecies point to Jesus, and he fulfills the prophecies. All the different components, for instance, the temple and the sacrificial system, Jesus fulfills that. Jesus is the real sacrifice, the real Passover lamb, because he was innocent and perfect and slain so that the angel of death would pass over us. He is the true temple, the one in which we meet and experience the living God in which we're reconciled. He is the true prophet. He is the true priest who offers his life for ours to bring us to God. He's the true king. But then think of all the stories. The Bible in the Old Testament is filled with narratives. People, we hear stories about Abraham and Joseph and Moses and David. Jesus fulfills those stories, those narratives. Listen to how one pastor, Tim Keller, describes Jesus as the fulfillment of all these stories. He writes, Jesus is the true and better Adam because Jesus passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is given to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, though innocently slain his blood now, that now cries out not for our condemnation but for our acquittal. He is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and the familiar, to go into the void not knowing where he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who not just offered up, was offered up by his father on the mount, but was sacrificed for us. And when God said to Abram, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, now we can look at God taking his son on the mount and sacrificing him and say, now we know you love us because you did not withhold your son. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice that we deserve so that like Jacob, we only receive wounds of grace. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between people and the Lord and mediates a new covenant. He's the true and better David whose victory uh, comes to his people. Jesus is the true and better Esther who didn't just risk leaving an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate and heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life. Every narrative finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Do you see how all the law and the prophets, the whole Old Testament, gets fulfilled in Jesus? But there's more. Remember, two ways to fulfill the law. Certainly by obeying it, by your life, by fulfilling it. But Jesus also did that by paying the penalty for law-breaking. Jesus fulfills the law by paying the penalty for our law-breaking. He suffered the penalty for our breaking the law. He died on the cross. Listen to how various people in the New Testament have described it. 
2 Corinthians 5, we read that in the cross, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 3.18, where it says, Christ died once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Christ's death for us. In that death, God's love and his law are fully satisfied. They perfectly come together. Jesus was struck down to satisfy the justice of God, since that paid for sins. But Jesus died to satisfy the love of God, since that secured our salvation as well. And in that way, God is both just and the justifier. He is the one who is just, but also the one who lovingly justifies us. That's the genius of the gospel, that how both of these come together. Each are fulfilled together without any of, one of them losing an inch in their full scope. Law never has been so fully just as on the cross because God takes law and justice and holiness with such seriousness. And he, he doesn't say, oh, you tried your best, free pass. Uh, try telling that to a judge when you get convicted. But when Jesus died, the law was never more fully itself, never more properly just. The death for our sin was God's way of saying, I so hold up the goodness of this law that I will go to these lengths to allow death to come over me. But also on the cross, love has never been seen more fully expressed. On the cross, Jesus didn't die simply to pay a debt, but also to be our substitute. That means we are free from the condemnation of law as if we ourselves had died and gone to hell to pay. We are that free. Jesus was sold to buy us back. He was captive to deliver us. He was condemned so that we might be absolved. This is that perfect bringing together of law and love. We all tend to go one way or the other. We think it's either or. Those are the only categories we have, law or love. But Jesus shows us something much more, much more beautiful, much more glorious. And only when we see these two coming together in Jesus will we experience this amazing life transformation. Because it does change you. The law remains very important, absolutely. But it, it no longer has to be obeyed to be saved. We obey it in order to please the one who has already saved us changes your attitude towards yourself, towards other people, towards God. And you know what happens? Then your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. Jesus said that. It's a pretty ominous thing. How? How, how can that do that? Well, when you're changed by the gospel, your righteousness exceeds the right living of the Pharisees, who are only just looking at the externals. They, they sort of dealt with the law in a distorted way. They missed the point. They were concerned with rule-keeping as opposed to the relationship with God. But Jesus is saying, let me tell you what the law of God demands. It demands not just external compliance. It's about relationship. It's about the inward dispositions of your heart, your motivations. And what Jesus has done for us gives us the power to live that sort of life. It gives us the power for a long obedience because it flows from the inside. Think about yourself. Are you motivated in your obedience by fear? You know, if I don't do that, man, I'm going to hell. That, that's not going to last. Are you motivated by pride? How people might see you? That's not going to last. But when you see what Christ has done for you on the cross, 
When you find joy in the gospel, gratitude is this overwhelming motivation. Jesus points beyond the rules and gets to that heart, to the internal realities, which is the powerhouse for a good life. And because this is what Jesus was. Remember in John, it says Jesus came full of grace and truth. Truth without grace, it's not truth. And grace without truth, it's just not grace. Jesus came full of grace and truth. And he can fill you with the same. Let's pray. Jesus, we, if we're honest, we do try to figure this law-love thing out, and we mess it up. We confuse it all the time. Would you show us most clearly how we can live this? Focus our hearts and mind on the cross, Jesus, on what you have done for us there. Help us to see that perfect melding of your beautiful law and your breathtaking love for us. May that melt our hearts. May that grab us and so compel us so that we might live for the sake of others as you have lived for the sake of us, so that we might give ourselves selflessly without thought of fear or judgment because we know that the penalty has been paid. Our judgment day is in the past and all that awaits us is your affirmation and smile. May that compel us to live such good lives. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.